If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And if you were one of the, what seemed like 50 or so youth who joined the church recently and were given a Bible, I would encourage you, bring it, open it, mark in it. That's why we gave it to you. We want you to bring it. Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. It's about 15 years ago, a man, quite frankly, whose name doesn't really deserve to be remembered, walked into a one-room Amish schoolhouse on a clear, warm Monday morning brandishing a gun. Uh, The man ordered all of the boys and adults to leave the room He then tied up 10 of the girls, ages 6 to 13, and started shooting. After he had taken the life of five of the children and injuring all the rest of them, he turned the gun on himself and took his own life. Horrific evil. But as astounding as that act of evil was, what happened afterwards was equally as shocking. Because even as the Amish parents were waiting in a nearby barn for word about whether their daughters had survived... An Amish man arrived at the gunman's home with a message for the gunman's parents. And it was this, that they did not see the gunman's parents as if they were enemies. Rather, they saw his parents as those who were grieving the loss of a child also. Amish man put his hand on the father's shoulder and called him his friend. Then they backed it up with action on the day of the gunman's funeral. The gunman's funeral. 30 people from the Amish community attended the funeral. They ended up embracing them as part of their community. So much so that when the gunman's mother, some years later, would suffer from stage 4 breast cancer, one of the girls who survived the massacre helped to clean her home before she came home from the hospital. On Christmas, a large yellow bus pulled up in front of her home and a bunch of Amish children piled outside in order to sing Christmas carols to them. Astounding. And the years that follow, it was fascinating to watch reporters who were incredulous as to what had happened try to process it all. On the one hand, how was it possible that the Amish could do such a thing? Second of all, they debated whether or not it was even healthy to begin with to extend forgiveness in this particular way. Now look, why am I ruining our mornings with such a story like that? Well, theologian Larry Hurtado wrote a book many years ago called The Destroyer of Gods, where he outlined uh, this fact that the earliest Christians 
were the most persecuted minority in the entirety of the Roman Empire. And yet, no one was converting to Christianity more than this persecuted religion. And he began to ask why. What was it that was making Christianity so compelling? And Hurtado says there's five things. He said the first thing people found compelling was that the community of Christians were multiracial and multiethnic. Secondly, that they were committed to helping the poor and the marginalized. Thirdly, they were strongly against abortion and infanticide. And then fourthly, they were committed to a radical, strict sexual ethic. It's kind of a funny list, isn't it? <laughs> Look at that list and you kind of see the first, the first two of those tend to be the purview of the political left in our day, are they not? You know, multiracialism, poverty alleviation, that tends to be Democrats' values. While the staunch pro-life and sexual conservatism, that's kind of Republican values, right? But Hurtado goes on to say that it was the fifth characteristic of these early Christians that describes almost no one in our day. And it was this, that these early Christian communities were non-retaliatory and committed to forgiveness, just like the Amish people. Now look, for our purposes this morning, that last notion of being non-retaliatory is rooted in the verses that Doug just read for us. But you need to be warned because there's not a whole lot of sets of teachings in the Sermon on the Mount that are more prone to misunderstanding because how hard they are to understand than the teachings that we're getting to. And not only that, they're just hard to stomach because we've got to spend some time hearing Jesus talk to us about our enemies. And it's the same thing I've been telling to you this entire semester. There is no discussion of the good life that's complete until we figure out what to do with the people that we hate. Why? Because our enemies are the spoilers of the good life. Go read through the Psalms this year and figure out how often the psalmist is trying to emotionally work through his relationship to his enemies. So Jesus comes along and says, you need to work against the inertia that's pulling your soul into becoming part of the problem. How do we do this? By hearing what he says. And I think there's at least three things we got to wrap our minds around. First is this. We have the problem of retaliation. We have the strategy towards our enemies. And finally, the quest for wholeness. Let's take that first one first. The problem with retaliation. Okay, Jesus gives us his next, you have heard it said there in verse 38, which ends up, as it were, being a quote from the book of Exodus. Chapter 21, verse 22 where Moses is warning what can oftentimes happen when two people get into a tussle together. He says there, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Theologians would go on to call this the lex talionis, or in Latin, the law of the tooth. And it was important that this sort of came out in Moses' day because he was speaking into a culture that couldn't care less about justice. If you think about it, in that culture, let's say that you were injured in some kind of altercation and you lost a limb. It was quite common in that age for you then to gather up a little militia of your own and go and kill the man who, in, who injured you and his family and maybe burn down his home as well. In other words, there was no equity, equity in the dispensing of justice. So the law of the tooth was intending to establish that at least among God's people, there is to be fairness in the way that justice is administered. It is a decidedly Christian topic 
to be concerned whether the citizens of the world are receiving equal justice. That's on our list, people. But of course, as by the time Jesus comes along, the law had been used to justify something entirely different. In other words, this law that was trying to create equitable Jewish uh, uh, practice was supposed to remain in law courts. But over time, it had become a, a justification for personal vendettas. You could drag that quote in for just about anything when you were taking personal revenge, which is kind of ironic if you consider that in so many other places in Jewish law, personal revenge was strictly forbidden. Places like Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so think about this carefully because Jesus was not contradicting the law of the tooth. He was trying to extract it from what, some, from what someone else was teaching that it was, from where it had ended up. In other words, a justification for personal revenge. Christians, he says, we don't use that for personal relationships. We are driven by a logic of love. It's kindness that leads us to do such in the face of offenses. That's why verse 39, he says, do not resist the one who is evil. All right, look, if you're not squinting with disapproval at this point, you're probably not listening because this is hard teaching. And I think Jesus knows that it's going to be hard, which is why he gives us those little four vignettes that he listed there but the next passage and to let us know how this might be applied. The first thing he talks about is direct insult. Apparently a slap from the back of the hand to someone was, a pers- was the highest personal affront that you could deliver against somebody. But Jesus is saying, look, my followers are not going to return an insult for an insult. Rather, they're just going to absorb it instead of insulting back. Hence, turn the other cheek. Secondly, he talks about giving someone the shirt off your back. In other words, he's saying, if there's someone in your life that you feel is, I don't know, taking a little bit more off of this transaction between you and them than they probably should, please, he says, do not act like they're taking your very life. As a matter of fact, you need to let them skim a little bit off the top. You'll be fine. Number three, Jesus talks about a practice that was very common that Roman soldiers could legally, uh, forcefully, involuntarily conscript the usefulness of a Jewish person (laughs) and see to them uh, to carry their stuff up to a mile. And Jesus looks at him and says, look, I don't want you to resent that. As a matter of fact, walk with them a second mile. Finally, he talks about being generous to those who are in need when you have the means to help them. He's saying, my people are not going to be stingy when it comes to being a financial blessing to others. Do you hear the theme throughout those examples? Jesus is saying, my followers are not going to be motivated by vindictive revenge, even to the point of allowing an evil person to get away with it a little bit, even when they're taking a little bit of advantage of you. Okay, now this is where the questions start. And as it turns out, in this case, it's good that the questions start because Jesus' words here need qualification. Because if you take them too woodenly, you'll end up contradicting other places in Scripture which actually forbid the opposite. Let me see if I can illustrate this. For instance, Jesus is not saying, spouses, that if you're living with an abusive person and that spouse hits you, that you look at them then and say, well, thank you, may I have another? It's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is also not saying that we should give away to the poor 
in very thoughtless ways. You do realize that there's ways to distribute finances to the poor, which actually can do more harm than it does good. Jesus isn't forbidding any of that. Commentator John Stott, I think, gives a helpful distinction here where he says there are two ways in which a Christian thinks about the hats that they're wearing. There are times in which a Christian is acting purely as an individual, but there are other hats that he wears where he is a part of an institution. And the instructions that God gives to each is different. The demands as individuals means that we are never to seek retribution. But there will be times when we find ourselves in institutions where we have to seek justice. It's really interesting. I think in our day, we've kind of reversed those values, haven't we? Christians, man, we are the first people to scream as soon as we get personally hurt. (laughs) But we're so ignorant of the fact that institutions themselves can be committing all kinds of injustices with impunity. Stott says this, The Christian is to be wholly free from revenge, not only in action, but in his heart as well. As an office bearer in either state or church, however, he may find himself entrusted with authority from God to resist evil and to punish it. Okay, but look, don't let the exceptions, though, neutralize the rule. Because Jesus is teaching something that I think is intended to get under your skin And really get you asking the question about why it is I want so badly to get even. And this is where I start asking this question. Why why would Jesus give us this command? I think here's the reason. Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. Because if we don't, then that sin is going to succeed in doing what it does the best. Which is to consume the host. Sin, evil, has a desire to spread. Because we have these sin natures, sin knows how to breed and multiply and replicate until it becomes new strains of hurt for other people. Unless, of course, there is someone who stops it. It's as if Jesus is saying to his followers to look at the evil in the world and scream, Stop the spread! There's another pandemic going on that is consuming each other and destroying each other through our hatred and our vindictiveness. And the problem is it just repeats itself. The hate doesn't stay in one place. It goes from person to person, from neighborhood to neighborhood, even generation to generation. Probably give some stories about that. Jesus is saying, my people, though, are going to be the stopgap in sin's destructive force in the world. They're going to be the ones makes people nervous when folks quote from political figures, but I don't think we need to be nervous in the case of Martin Luther King Jr. When you consider that his platform back in the 60s was based upon, during the civil rights movement, a commitment to a nonviolent posture towards the very people who he believed were oppressing African Americans in the South in the 60s. Nonviolent posture. Non-retaliatory posture. I think there's an interesting case to be made that King's legacy has far outlasted many of his more militant co-laborers during that season. But I offer that just for your consideration. So that's the problem with retaliation. It just spreads. Secondly, though, we want to look at what Jesus says about the strategy towards enemies. So he gives his next, you have heard it said, where he takes on a a phrase that apparently had become commonplace in his day at verse 43, which says, love your enemy and, or excuse me, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You can find all over the Bible that whole love your neighbor business, but this thing about hate your enemy, that is nowhere in the Old Testament. 
What happened, though, was people had taken that admonition to love their neighbor, and they interpreted their neighbor strictly along racial lines. That is, my neighbor is my own kin. These are people of my race. These are people of my color, uh, of my religion. Everybody else can go walk out into the ocean for all I care. That's how it had been interpreted. So Jesus is confronting this tendency of people to see themselves as ethnically pure. And the main way in which you saw that come out it was in the way they treated immigrants, the way they treated outsiders, or how the Old Testament will put it, the stranger within your gates. You've got places like Leviticus 19.34, and see where it says, You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. A little too easy to go blowing past Proverbs, like Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Do you hear the posture towards the outsider, towards the immigrant? But when you interpret God's providence purely along racial lines, we don't even see those people anymore. It's somebody else's problem. Now, I realize that for a lot of people, this becomes difficult because they don't know exactly how to apply it because you've got a lot of places in the Old Testament where God very clearly commands God's people to go wipe out some of his enemies. You're familiar with these. Or, even so, you've got plenty of psalms where the psalmist is actually praying all kinds of curses down on his enemies. What do you do about those passages? Well, again, I think John Stott is super helpful when he says this. He says, so there is such a thing as perfect hatred, just as there is a, such a thing as righteous anger. But it is hatred for God's enemies, not our own enemies. God's hatred is entirely free of spite, of rancor, of vindictiveness, and is fired only by love for God's honor and for his own glory. That's the difference. What he's saying is it's getting on God's side in his opposition to evil is one thing. Carrying out personal slur campaigns to anybody who we feel has wronged us is forbidden. Our hatred in that regard must be, as he says, perfect, not personal. Okay, so let's ask the question again. This is hard. How can Jesus lay this at my feet? I think there's two answers to that question, a negative one and a positive one. Negatively, Jesus is inviting us in verse 45 to, to see how it is that even God the Father extends grace to his enemies. And how does he do it? By allowing the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. God doesn't discriminate. He is in the process of blessing people who hate him. Follow suit, Jesus is saying. But positively, I think also for Jesus, in his mind, he knows where he's headed. He's headed to the cross. And he knows what's going to be the sum total of effect of that cross. Because what that cross is going to do is to dig within the hearts of his people a limitless supply of dignity, a limitless supply of value and confidence so that every time we are sinned against, which by the way creates this debt, does it not? We have resources within ourselves from which we might draw and neutralize the debt. I've got enough inside me. 
I've used this illustration before. Imagine, though, that someone comes up to you and asks to borrow $20 today because they, they want to go to lunch or something after church. Well, tomorrow morning, you're woken up by a knock at your door by the TV cameras. You have just won the lottery, not just a lottery, the largest lottery payout ever in American history. You are a gazillionaire as of tomorrow morning. Somewhere in the midst of your celebrating, your phone rings. You answer it, and it's your friend from the day before. And he's like, before you can explain to him what's going on, he's like, look, I'm so sorry. If you just give me a little more time, I'll come back over and pay you my $20. <laughs> what are you going to say to that guy? <laughs> it really is okay. $20, keep your $20. Do you need any more? Don't you understand? Do you understand how wealthy I am? The gospel is intending to dig in us such a wellspring of hope and confidence that not only is there enough to get over the little quibbles with my friends, but also with the people who have deeply offended me as my enemies. A Christian looks and says, I don't need you to affirm me because I am amply supplied with affirmation from the God of the universe. And the more I doubt that, the more petty I become. Look, mm -hmm. take a moment. Let's all take a moment, shall we? To think about how we have spoken about each other in this last year. What has been the tone of our disagreement over our politics? What has been the posture that we've taken with those who have had differing opinions about how we should deal with the pandemic? Or how we should open up the economy. Are you a mask person or a no mask person? What have we nursed in our heart as we've watched the news with protesters? Whether those protesters are on the streets of Minneapolis or whether they're on the steps of our nation's capital. And I don't bring this up to make us all feel guilty. But I simply want to ask, rather than allowing your heart to go to like, oh, feeling guilty... Ask this question, is it possible that the fact that those things set me off with the fire in which they have is because I'm not full up of the grace that comes from the gospel? That's an entirely different instinct, is it not? Guilt oftentimes does nothing more than heap more shame, and the shame just creates the cycle because the shame shows that I'm empty on the inside, and the more empty I am, the more i got to take it out of your hide. It's the Shylock's pound of flesh that he wants. Are we that way? That's the strategy towards enemies, though, that we let those things go as Jesus followers. But then thirdly and finally, we have to understand this quest for wholeness. Do you remember back in February when we were talking about that word perfect when Jesus says, but be ye perfect, the old King James says. And I said that, I said that, ver that word perfect in verse 38 was not a really good translation. It would be better translated the word wholeness. Or maybe finality. Jesus is not commanding his people to work and reach toward what we might call a sinless perfection. Although there have been many Christians throughout history who have thought he was commanding that. There have been well-intentioned Christians who have taken Jesus' words to mean that a person can get to a point where he actually doesn't sin. That cannot be the case. It can't be the case in context, can it? You know, Jesus is already in the... Um, <clears throat> And the Beatitudes said that his followers are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We assume that to be a perpetual characteristic, right? In the very next chapter, chapter 6, we're going to get to in the next couple of weeks, 
He starts telling his followers to pray a certain prayer, one of which includes, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's an ongoing situation. But the the case is open and shut by the time you hear what the Apostle John says in 1 John 1, 8, when he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Not a whole lot of wiggle room there. Sin's on us until we get to perfection in heaven, people. So the question is, what is Jesus saying? I think what Jesus is saying then is, is that his followers are hungry to be whole again. To have all of these disparate elements of their life reunited under his lordship. Look, don't you see that sin's effects are corrosive. What it does is it it rips us apart in our relationship. We become disintegrated in the midst of our peevishness. We get fractured. And what happens is we fracture with this person and that person and that person until we are completely isolated. And loneliness takes over. And when loneliness takes over, we make really bad decisions. But that's not how we were created. (laughs) See, God is himself three persons in one essence. He is a unity in diversity all into himself. And for that reason, human beings were created to live together in community, in connections that the Bible calls marriage and families, neighborhoods, friendships, churches, cities, nations. The good life happens when we are functioning in these relationships, but we can't do it as long as we're devouring each other. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5, 13. He says, through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Do you hear what he's warning against? We're disintegrating. We're we're becoming less human as we do. The Amish gunman's mother has now become a permanent fixture of the Amish community. Every year they get together to talk about how they can encourage one another and talk through forgiveness. Forgetting, though, that's harder, mostly because the injured victims are still with them. One particular little Rosanna King is a young girl who now sits immobile in her wheelchair unable to talk, unable to feed herself because of the injury that she sustained on that horrible day when she was six years old. But the gunman's mother had tried to move towards her too. She would apparently go over to her house and hold her in her arms just like a grandmother might. The Washington Post article I was reading put it this way. It said, in the intervening years, the gunman's mother spent nearly every Thursday evening at the King's family farm, bathing, reading, and attending to Rosanna until her bedtime. After the first couple of visits, Robert said, she would cry uncontrollably the entire drive home, overwhelmed by the reality that this little girl was severely handicapped because of her son. The article went on to say that there was nothing about her present reality that's come easily, but she did say this. She said it would have been unthinkably harder had she not had the forgiveness of her Amish friends. From the article, she said this. No one could ever imagine on that day that something like this would be formed from it. Because of the response of forgiveness, we are able to heal. Did you hear her word there? She said something can be formed. That's the language of construction. That's the language of something reforming, 
of something that can be rebuilt, that can be reintegrated, that can be restored, as long as there is a wellspring of forgiveness. Look, I'm convinced more and more that as, as we live in this era, that we'll, we'll unbearably become known as the cancer culture, cancel culture generation. We become known for our lack of forgiveness. And what that means is that more and more places like this, the church, will be one of the last outposts in our community for where anyone can find forgiveness at all. There is no discussion happening out there as we implicate one another for both present and historic ills. My question is this, will this be as a light to our community, a place where we can understand, nurture, and demonstrate forgiveness to this community? Who knows how the Lord would lead us into that, but I do know how it begins. It begins with us asking him to make us that kind of gracious people those who love their enemies and bless those who curse him. Would that we would be that kind of people. Let's pray. But Lord Jesus, we know that only you can do that because only your gospel can make it. Father, right now we're, we're leafing through in our minds the people that we cannot stand. And some of those situations are complicated. It's not easy to ask these questions. But by your spirit, we do pray that as we, as we close in this hymn, that you would help us to be full that we would no longer act like we were poverty-stricken when it comes to grace. Would you make us see the, the, the glory of our one lottery, the inexhaustible well of grace that's in us that allows us to spread to all those around us and make us step out of our homes tomorrow and into where you've called us to serve with brand new eyes that would come and love our neighbors. Would you do that? And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.